внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. When U.S. President Joe Biden met Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin in Geneva, it had the vibe of a Cold War era summit. When Biden met Putin, it came at the lowest point in U.S.-Russian relations in decades. When Biden met Putin, Russia's cyber attacks, election interference, human rights abuses, and aggression against his neighbors, including Ukraine, were all on the agenda. When Biden met Putin, both sides talked about their so-called red lines. And when Biden met Putin, the Kremlin leader predictably played his usual game of whataboutism. So what else happened when Biden met Putin? And what does it mean going forward? Today, we'll discuss this with two good friends of the vertical. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic, Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend, Konstantin Eggert, someone I met way back in 2008 at Vladimir Putin's press conference at the NATO summit in Bucharest when I was with RFERL and he was with the BBC's Russian service. These days, Kostya is a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back, Kostya. It's always great to see you. Uh, thank you, Brian. And I didn't remember that we met at that the, was the first time we met. summit, which uh, allegedly sold Ukraine and Georgia down the road. <laughs> yes, uh, that, was, uh, that press conference was interesting and sad in, 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 in retrospect. Yeah. And also joining us from Miami is another old friend, a New England kid and Red Sox fan just like me, who unlike me has since become a Florida man. David Kramer served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked in Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director of the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Good to be with you, Brian and Kostya. Good to have you back. David, let's start with you, because I, I know that like you and I had similar concerns going into this summit, that Putin was not really interested in the stable and predictable adversarial relationship that Biden is seeking. So to get the ball rolling, it's like to give you an open mic. What are your top line takeaways from the summit? I think at the end of the day, the, the summit didn't amount to terribly much. President Biden hit all the right notes in emphasizing the importance of human rights. I think that was a, an important point for him to make. Uh, he then ran down a list on cyber, strategic stability, Ukraine, Belarus, Afghanistan, Iran, the list goes on and on. But it, at the end of the day, I think Putin also uh, followed his uh, script. And basically what he said was, all the problems in the relationship are the fault of the United States, and the United States is the one that needs to fix this. Um, and I think that is was the most important message from Putin's press conference. The whataboutism in which he deflected any critical questions about the situation inside his country was a way to simply show that he's willing to take those questions, but he also knows how to handle them. He also was able to strike a contrast in the two press conferences where he was willing to take questions from uh, Western reporters, whereas President Biden uh, didn't take any questions from any uh, Russian representatives. I'm not sure I'd use the term journalist these days. Um, and so at the end of this, as President Biden said, it'll take either three, six, or 12 months to see if anything materializes. Mm -hmm. They agreed on returning the ambassadors. I'm not sure a summit was necessary for that. They agreed to have working groups focus on strategic stability and cyber. I'm not sure anything will really come of that. Um, so it, President Biden is able to say now, he gave Putin an opportunity. I don't think Putin is going to seize it, however. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I see this, and it, I mean, from, from what I can read from the tea leaves, there seems to be a little bit of a debate going on in the administration right now. I mean, everybody seems to see the same Russia, and they probably see the same Russia the three of us see. I'm sure they see the same Russia the three of us see, right? A kleptocratic, authoritarian, revanchist, aggressive power. Uh, but there's a debate about what to do about it. 
And there appears to be a, like, don't poke the bear faction in the administration. And there appears to be a much more, a more hawkish faction in the administration. And I think what the president's doing right now, David, you, you have much more experience inside of government. I don't have any experience inside of government, so you naturally have much more experience inside of government than me. But what it seems to me that the president is doing is he's trying to get caught trying right now. I mean, he's actually kind of doing something very similar on the international stage that he's doing domestically. Right. In domestic politics, he has to be seen to be trying to reach a bipartisan compromise with the Republicans and all sorts of legislation to please certain members of his own caucus, most notably, you know, Senator Joe Manchin. The, the functional equivalent of here is he has to get caught trying with the Russians to, as a kind of performance art for, you know, different factions, different parts of the alliance, the, the, the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Greeks, what have you. Do you think I got that right, David? I think you do, Brian. I think there are divisions within the administration already in this early period with, I think, uh, and the Washington Post had a piece on this recently describing the State Department taking a more hawkish line than the NSC. Mm -hmm. But there are some, some risks with this approach in meeting with Putin, and that is Putin did nothing to warrant a summit with President Biden except beef up the military presence along the border with Ukraine and an illegally occupied Crimea, put Navalny's life in danger. And for that, he was invited to a summit with the president of the United States. And by the way, let's also not forget that after the invitation was extended, it took Putin more than a month to accept. And in that time, we saw ransomware attacks on the Colonial Pipeline, on the JBS meat processing plant. We saw him meet with Lukashenko after the terrorist uh, act on the Ryan airplane. And then the designation of the Bali's organization for uh, being extremist. So Putin has done nothing that would suggest a willingness to extend his hand and try to reciprocate Biden's offer for for a summit. And, and that worries me because Putin might conclude he can pretty much do whatever he wants and he'll still get an opportunity to sit down with the president. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hoping going forward in this is that like, the ball's in Putin's court now, and if his behavior changes, then the relationship will improve. But I don't expect Putin's behavior to change. He's going to continue being Putin. And again, my hope is that Biden gets caught trying, and then that opens the door up to the more hawkish line on this that seems to be coming out of the State Department uh, rather than this more dovish line that's coming out of the NSC. Kostya, I saw you literally applauding as David was, was speaking, so I want to I turn the mic over to you. I, I know you've been paying a lot of attention to the reactions to the summit in Russia in both the traditional media and among Influencers on social media. I I've been getting, getting a little peek at it, and they're they're kind of uh, they're crowing and they're kind of triumphant. Is the, is the is the takeaway I have here? What do you see, and what does this tell us about how the Kremlin views the outcome of the summit? Well, before I answer, I'd like to thank David for not uh, using the term Russian journalists. Uh, I think uh, it's <laughs> rather the uh, honorary Putin club of flying carpet flunkies that many use kind of. <laughs> Woodhousian uh, type of designation. But I think that, uh, seriously speaking, I think that David is, is usual. I mean, we, we usually see eye to eye now quite seriously. I think he's right. Uh, I think that uh, Putin grabbed the reward without actually playing the game in some way, or rather playing very little of it. I suppose that uh, he was prepared that he will have to do a giveaway. And I think that quite a few of those uh, ransomware attacks uh, were deliberately organized to then tell Biden, okay, I'll, I know a couple of numbers, I'll, mm. I'll give them a buzz, they will, they, will, <laughs> they will come down. And he did it very deliberately. Remember, Biden is what? Putin's fifth president. After yes. President, right? So he knows how the American machine operates. He probably doesn't understand the essence. He probably doesn't understand the shiny city of the hill, on the hill. He doesn't understand Republic born of an idea. That, he thinks, is just a load of rubbish. But he understands how the system works better than probably anyone since Brezhnev meeting Nixon, mm -hmm. uh, or rather Carter. And I think that he understood that for Biden, because of the situation inside the Republican Party, uh, to which Putin slightly, say, contributed, because of external pressures. Well, he, these cyber attacks are important. So that's why he's prepared to sacrifice something or sacrifice uh, in inverted commas because the sacrifice is worth only just one phone call to the GRU headquarters, the so-called aquarium in Moscow. 
And I think that um, also this kind of let's return the ambassador, it's usual superpower stuff that is usually enacted in such circumstances. But whether Putin is prepared to go further, I'm not sure. Actually, I think that maybe, again, maybe, and for this, you have to go and read my column on DWCOM, our Dr. Valley official website, as part of advertising. I think that maybe whatever the wing of the presidential administration in Washington, White House, probably misjudged how to approach Putin. Because all this talk about Cold War, which is supposed to boost Putin's sort of self-esteem and, and, and make him feel like he's... Uh, Again, Brezhnev going into, into a meeting room with, with Nixon or, or Kennedy, Khrushchev, whatever. Uh, maybe it's kind of besides the point here, because Putin is not Brezhnev, is not Gorbachev, and is not definitely not Khrushchev. And modern Russia is not the USSR. It's different. Also because, and I think I mentioned once, Brian, on your program, because it's run by a different set of people from the Politburo of old, which to all intents and purposes, and much as I dislike them, uh, was representing the national interests of the Soviet Union the way they saw them. Mm. Also, after they met in, in concilium uh, as a Politburo, they all went to their own respective duchess and their own respective zeals, to their respective waitresses with their respective caviar dishes. <laughs> pretty much the same, or maybe blinis or whatever. Uh, but they did not actually own Russian gas, Russian oil, Russian gold, and Russian arms exports as private individuals through a range of so-called SOE, state-owned enterprises. You are dealing with a completely different set of people who are camouflaging their own interest as national interests of Russia. Mm -hmm. That's a whole kind of, it's, it's a different kettle of fish, as they would say in England. And to approach it as if they were the Politburo vote probably is a conceptual mistake. And, frankly speaking, there is another thing. Putin and his team are survivalists. Their great concern is to survive as long as they want, where they sit, with their assets intact, and then, well, give it to the next generation. Essentially, it is like a collective monarchy. Whether it's taken into consideration by Bill Burns and all these wonderful people that are advising Biden, I don't know. What I'm concerned about, is that the main points which should be made, and that is, for example, Ukraine, it's much more important for Putin than start. He will, he will conclude start. There's no doubt about that. He doesn't have money for another arms race. And he's not even Gorbachev. What he's concerned about is the domestic situation. And mm -hmm. he's concerned about the so-called post-Soviet space, apart from the Baltic state, which are to reach. But Moldova? Georgia, and of course, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. The U word, if it wasn't mentioned by Biden forcefully enough, then it's a missed opportunity. I'm really sorry to say that. No, it was really notable that during Putin's press conference, the bit where he got the most animated was when he was talking about Ukraine. No, and Kostya, I think you're right. We're dealing with something different from the Soviet Union. Um, we're dealing with effectively a, you know, a crime syndicate that's basically commandeered a country. And you correctly pointed out, this is, this is Putin's fifth U.S. president. And he may think he knows how the system works, but I don't think he gets us. But there's another element to this. And I, I'd be interested in David's thoughts on this, because like this is his fifth president, but he has never dealt with a U.S. president with the experience of Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden has the most experience on the international stage of any U.S. president since George H.W. Bush. Right. And, and this that's a U.S. president that, that Putin never dealt with. Putin dealt with five U.S. presidents who were to varying degrees kind of how do I put this without diminishing oh, any of them. They, they were they were novice. They were relative novices compared to George H.W. Bush and compared to where Joe Biden is now. And so I don't think, you know, is is Putin miscalculating and is Biden just running with this? When I was watching Putin's performance art. He could have been doing this at any summit with any of these past five U.S. presidents. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, David, if you think there is something fundamentally different, because let's face it, President Biden is a, a quite an experienced figure on the international stage at various levels in, the, in both the executive and the legislative branch, is more knowledgeable about international affairs than, again, I would say, coming into office, any of his predecessors, except, you know, going back to George H.W. Bush. And is this, is this an advantage for the U.S. in this situation? Can we do some well, jujitsu here? Let's let's not leave out, Brian, that President Putin 
had his agents work on behalf of Biden's challenger oh, okay. in the 2020 election. So he tried to uh, help Biden lose and didn't win on that bet. I mean, that's another example of how I think at the end of the day, Putin doesn't understand us all that well. Uh, he certainly doesn't understand his neighbors, by the way, because right. if he thinks invading them is a way to win them over, then he's sadly mistaken. Um, but I, I do think he is facing a, a probably a, a stiffer challenge than he's faced in the past with other presidents based on, on Biden's experience. And yet, I, I think he is looking at some of the the decisions made by the administration and the Nord Stream 2 decision, while it may have been driven by concern about the U.S.-German relationship, nevertheless has huge implications for yep. Russia. Um, and the fact that the administration decided, perhaps after some significant internal debate, to provide a waiver for the Nord Stream 2 company and Matthias Wernig, who is close to Putin, right. um, I think Putin could only interpret that as a, a soft approach from the Biden administration, despite the two rounds of sanctions. And the second round of sanctions was not as tough as many people were hoping. So I do worry, and I mentioned before, about how he got the summit invitation. It wasn't by doing anything nice. It was by threatening to do some really awful things. At the end of the day, though, if we get nothing out of this summit, my hope is that we will see the release of the two Americans who yes. are wrongfully detained in Russia, Paul Whelan and Trevor Reed. I, I would also love to see the release of some of the political prisoners in Russia. I'm less optimistic about that. But the most optimistic promising note sounded between the two presidents was on the issue of the two Americans, where Putin himself suggested that a compromise was possible. And uh, I, I think if that's the only thing that comes out of this, Biden can claim credit for getting mm -hmm. two Americans out of a Russian prison. And anything else, I think, is is less likely. But uh, pushing for that should not be underestimated. Getting people out of prison who don't belong there is actually a fairly significant accomplishment. Kostya, uh, you, you like performance art. Um, <laughs> um, and so I, I wanted to get you to kind of assess the performance art of Putin. Again, it was the same old Putin we've always seen. But there was the performance art there. There was the comparing Navalny to the people that stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which like took absurdity to a whole new level. Uh, one reporter called Putin's press conference a masterclass in performance art. And then Biden's response to it, because Biden had to come after that and respond to it in his own press conference. He did. Um, how did. How did you assess the performance art of both presidents? Well, before I do that, and, and because of my job and by the way, your job, Brian, too. We we have to be performance artists a bit, so we we we, yeah. we are. Yes. <laughs> we are uh, performance artists. I, think, uh, I would like to mention two things. Uh, it's very good that David uh, David raised the issue of uh, Nord Stream two, and the way it will be definitely seen in the Kremlin as an attempt by Joe Biden to be like a hundred dollar bill because everyone likes a hundred dollar bill. But I would add another two things, which probably passed not they were not as noticed uh, as as Nord Stream, but. Another one was not inviting President Zelensky of Ukraine to meet Joe Biden, uh, to meet in the White House or elsewhere before the summit. And then actually what, it, what was even worse than a correction in which they, the White House said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll meet, but we'll, we'll definitely meet Zelensky, but after sometime during summer, which was, which indicated that there were either disagreements in the team about Zelensky or there was not enough thought given to him, and then a clash of schedules, and then, of course, they had to rearrange it. So that indicates not a great organization, either or it's not good. And it sends a signal that, in fact, Ukraine is not that important, and Ukraine is being, again, judged on corruption and whatever, which is huge. But Kuwait wasn't judged in 1991 on women's rights, which were non-existent <laughs> at the time during Operation Desert Storm. But it was happening. And the third point, which probably really went completely sort of, uh, it was out of focus for most, but it's the lifting of sanctions on several Iranian individuals and companies, ostensibly because they don't have anything to do with the Iranian nuclear program now. But that indicated to Putin that Biden wants the Obama legacy back. And that is the, uh, the Iran deal, which frankly, I don't care whether people think that because of that, I'm very close to Donald Trump, but I think which was a rotten deal. And I think that here, Putin, who is a 
not only performance artist, but uh, kind of an attentive watcher of people. Probably there he saw glimpses of Barack Obama agreeing to receive a Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, a kind of legacy thing. And he knows how to play it too. So on Iran, he has something to offer, not a lot, but something to offer to Biden. And he's going to trade it. So all these things indicated that there are soft spots in the American mm. position, which Putin will not hesitate to exploit. As for performance, let me also show you or remind you that Putin was clever enough to play the Navalny card twice with regard to the United States, because he also indicated, he linked indirectly Navalny with the, with the BLM, well, let's say not yeah. BLM, but BLM-related rights in Washington. So he played to audiences that, well, kind of like him. And that's, on the one hand, it's the audience with Confederate flags and, you know, AR-15s mm. uh, and this kind of, you know, racists and so forth. But he also played with the Antifa, the Molotov cocktail-throwing black-masked thugs. And he knows that thugs like him, and irrespective of whether they're right-leaning thugs or left-leaning thugs, because they don't like America as it is. And Putin is the great peddler of anti-Americanism in the world, the greatest probably because of nuclear weapons and, and his position. So he knows how to peddle it to any audience, left, right, or probably even center. Now, he used it. He used the press conference to grandstand, to address directly, uh, well, not a lot, but some of his fans in the United States. He also definitely addressed, as he did in the NBC interview, the domestic audience, in which he showed that he's not giving a quarter uh, on mm. domestic. Uh, he's not giving a quarter on Ukraine. Remember this phrase, well, NATO membership for Ukraine, that's not even debatable. And frankly speaking, the fact that Joe Biden didn't address it during his press conference, said, well, we'll have a debate. President Putin said it's not debatable. We'll have a debate. We have a Bucharest summit decision communicate that Ukraine and Georgia yep. will eventually be members of NATO. I think that that was a missed opportunity to show Putin, hey, hold on a sec. Um, I'm probably older than you are. I'm, I can't hold for an hour during the press. That was visible, that Joe Biden had a much shorter press conference. But look, I know what you mean, and I will not let you pass. I will not let you uh, get away with that. Uh, I think on Navalny, it was much better because Biden said very forcefully, if Navalny dies, there's, there's going to be consequences. I hope he won't. But I think on NATO and Ukraine, again, I'm coming back to Ukraine, which is the main axis around which mm -hmm. the whole Putin presidency and his legacy, yes. his own life, revolves. And I think in this respect, it was a missed opportunity mm -hmm. to show we know that we're paying attention. I mean, but but I hope, and I want to bring David in. But just in fairness, in that cost you. I mean, the there was a phone call to Zelensky before Biden's foreign trip. There was a White House invitation issued. I know there are legitimate concerns in the administration about domestic political issues in in Ukraine. Um, and I agree with you; these should not overshadow the national security concerns. I'm going to reserve judgment on the Ukraine piece until that White House meeting with President Zelensky happens, which I'll be watching as attentively as I was watching this summit because I think. A White House invitation is a big deal, right? To paraphrase the president when he was vice president. Um, and, and that was given to President Zelensky. It was definitely not given to Mr. Putin. David, I know you wanted to jump in here. Well, in fact, Putin was asked this and, and said he was not invited to the White House. Yeah. So that, that yeah. makes the contrast even starker. But, but Kostya, I think, is absolutely right to raise the, the issue of Ukraine because the summit on Wednesday in Geneva did not happen in a vacuum. You, you had the Ukrainians strongly pushing for, at a minimum, a membership action plan, if not a timeline for actual membership. And they didn't They didn't really get it. What we saw from the NATO summit was a, a reaffirmation of the 2008 Bucharest communique. And here we are 13 years since then, and there hasn't been a great deal of progress. And, and instead, you had to have both uh, President Biden and Secretary General Stoltenberg raise the issue of corruption in Ukraine as something they needed to tackle before there could be real serious consideration for their membership. So in some respects, it was almost a slight step backward for Ukraine mm. on, on NATO. Um, but let me add one other element, and it's one that the three of us have talked about before, and Brian 
recent podcasts we've done and focused on Belarus. Here, I, I think President Biden made a huge mistake in not meeting with Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya either in London or in Brussels or, or anywhere, it could have been in Geneva before he met with Putin, to send a signal to the democratic forces in Belarus and to the Lukashenko regime and of course to Putin as well, that the United States stands with, with her and the democratic forces and will never recognize Lukashenko as, as a legitimate leader. I think it would have been a big boost uh, for all the supporters that she has, who, and there are a lot more than, mm -hmm. than Lukashenko has. And it was a real missed opportunity, I, I think, on, on the part of the, of the White House. No, and I know that her team has been pushing for a White House meeting, which they have not gotten yet. Um, it's something I would, again, would certainly like to see. And I do want to dive deeper into Belarus in the second half, because I think the the great unspoken thing at this summit was Belarus, because I think there's I think there might be some movement on Belarus. Um, and I want to dive into that in the second half. Before I do, there's one other substantive thing I wanted to hit on here in the first half. And this is the issue on, of cyber. I mean, one of the goals that Biden had going into this was to create some kind of guardrails or rules of the road on cyber, because in cyber, we're very much in a place analogous to the early nuclear period, where you had this like these terrifying new weapons with no rules of the road. And those rules of the road had to be kind of established over time through precedent. And I've often said we have to kind of go back to that period and learn from it. And there doesn't seem to be any movement on that. I mean, Biden did deliver a kind of a, you know, an or else, you know, you do this again, there, there, will, there will be a response. But there doesn't seem to be any movement. And I wonder how the two of you see that issue going forward, because if we don't establish some rules of the road on this soon, there could be some devastating consequences down the road. Let me say that I found this issue to be the most puzzling and, and uh, awkward uh, because President Biden said that he presented President Putin with a list of 16 areas that are supposed to be off limits to any cyber attacks or ransomware attacks. Does that mean anything beyond 16 is open game? Does that mean that uh, Putin and his agents can go after anything that's not on that list? That worries me. Um, and so I, I think President Biden should have been much tougher on this issue. And frankly, and it, he wouldn't have to say this publicly. I would hope he would have said privately, one more attack like the Colonial Pipeline, one more ransomware attack on the JBS meat processing company that affect our energy, our, our, our meat, and we're going to hit you really hard. Now, he sort of hinted at this when he said, wouldn't it be a terrible thing if somebody in the United States and Maine or Florida uh, were to affect Russia's pipelines? I hope he was even sharper in the private discussions with President Putin. If any other country has been doing what the Russians have toward us, toward hospitals last year in the middle of yeah. a pandemic yep. um, and, and everything else that's happened, we would consider these almost the equivalent of an act of war. Yeah. And yet the administration seemed to go out of its way. Maybe there's justification based on the intelligence they have to say that the recent ransomware attacks were not orchestrated by the Kremlin. At a minimum, Putin has created an environment in which this kind of activity is not just condoned, but encouraged. And these kinds of things have been encouraged uh, really for many years under the Putin leadership. Yeah, no, and I, I think another thing that we have to be very clear about is that we consider these state-enabled attacks to be the functional equivalent of state-sponsored attacks, because a lot of these attacks are state-enabled. I mean, exactly. hackers, get a, they get a deal in Russia. They basically say, don't hack the motherland. And if I ask you to hack somebody, you hack them. But other than that, have a party, right? So we have something with like, you know, Colonial Piper. It originated in Russia, but wasn't state directed. I think we got to make it really clear that the, the, the state enabled equals state sponsored. Um, but Kostya, your thoughts on that? Very briefly, I, I, I think that David said it all. Just to reiterate, so I think that Putin came with the knowledge, with a certainty, I would even say, that this is something he can easily give away because it's at his fingertips. Uh, yep. He doesn't have to send, you know, Rosgvardia to right. search for this kind of cyber criminals. They probably all wear insignia. <laughs> and I think that, uh, that because of that, it was an easy giveaway for him. But 
if this is going to be included in the so-called strategic stability conversation, that will be, I think, quite a big mistake. Because then it will be all entangled with the nuclear deterrence, with the terrorism, you name it. And then it becomes just this kind of uh, one of those um, strings which Putin can pull anytime he wants and link it to whatever he wants. So I suppose that uh, this was an easy giveaway for him. And I hope that the administration right. in Washington knows it. Kosti, before we move on, there's one thing I just came to my mind that I wanted to get your reaction to because I found it incredibly amusing as I was watching the summit. I was kind of paying attention to what the Russian media was doing in real time as the summit was going on and we were not getting any real information when they were meeting. And there was a lot of um, hand-wringing uh, or manufactured hand-wringing in the Russian media about the fact that Victoria Newland was in the room in the larger meeting. Um, you know, of course, during the Ukraine war, Victoria Nuland was turned into this this uh, lightning rod by the Russian media and by Russian officials. And the fact that she was in the, the room the was being portrayed by the Russian media as this provocative act by the by the American side, which anybody who knows anything about the, I mean, I would be surprised if Victoria wasn't in the room, right? She is the top diplomat on Russia in the State Department. So why why wouldn't she be in the room? What did, did you did you pick up on that? And what did you make of that? Oh, th this is this is part of this Russian obsession with personalities. Yes. Well, important as they are, are definitely not, you know, single-handedly deciding the fates of countries. But because of her distributing the famous cookies in the Maidan in uh, yes. 2014 in Kiev, she was turned into this, as I said, you know, the devil that wears probably not proud about the American flag on, on, on her <laughs> the shoulder patch. And I think that this is, they like to go back to they like to go back to Jane Psaki and you know and yeah. all these people and yeah, Jane Psaki me, was another if, another. If there is if there is um, yeah, a, a Republican administration again, John Bolton plays a role again. They will go back to Bolton's mustache. I mean, it's all about this <laughs> sort of you know uh, uh, this image of uh, you know kind of nearly Masonic conspiracy against <laughs> Russia that is enacted by different people. And they're all given labels. They're all given uh, this conspiracy has faces. And I think that uh, this is this kind of part of the propaganda interplay inside Russia, where people know very little about the United States, and uh, especially the audience of, uh, of the state media. So this is a good way to pin labels, and this is a good way to spin a story. Oh, remember, this is the same Nuland that conspired against Russia and Ukraine. So it's always good to give it a negative spin, because then Putin wins. Yeah. Like James Bond, you know, breaking through and you know, blowing up a couple of fuel tanks or whatever, killing <laughs> 2,000 people, and then, of course, he wins. But um, when you have enemies, when you have Blofeld, <laughs> Victoria Nuland or Bolton, or yours truly, sort of, you know, David Kramer, uh, <laughs> then it's easy to do it. It's not abstract people. You, you can put a face. So it's part of this propaganda. Yeah. But everything that, and this is now quite serious, everything that goes back to the Maidan is always extremely important. Yeah, if you yeah. can dig up a face from that period, yeah, uh, John McCain was alive. Well, they would have been having ball with John McCain. Now it's Tory Nuland, it's other people. Again, as I said, it's important because it's linked. Coming back to the main yeah. thing, it's linked to Ukraine. Everything is everything that's linked to Ukraine is important. And Brian, can I just mention very quickly, sorry, you know, on this side of the ocean, there was notice that uh, General Gerasimov was part of the Russian uh, mm -hmm. delegation and uh, Patrushev was not there. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, well, it, that it, some, it caused some some speculation on this side. I, I don't think there's much to be read into it, frankly. Gerasimov was the only one. was not very, in very good health. He may yeah. just be sort of having a problem yeah. with that. So, you know, sure. Yeah. It may be as simple as that. And, you know, Gerasimov was the only one there in a uniform. But but it reflects the fact that each side is entitled to bring whomever they want. And, right, right. Uh, and then for the rest of us, if they want to spend our time trying to infer what messages are being sent. Right. No, I, I was I took note of the fact that Dmitry Kozak was there. Um, yes, because um, and, and I, I, it didn't surprise me because he's he's Putin's Mister Fixit, um, and he's carrying the Ukraine portfolio right now, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the Kremlin. But I also think Kostya well, reflects well, is also on the sanctions. Mm. Yes. yes, that's right. Being that's right. Into the that's Schengen right. area. Well, of course, you know there are exceptions and so on. So he has a right. diplomatic passport too, but he is personally sanctioned. Yes. So that was also that was, that was, that was also a message. Yeah. 
Putin likes to bring along people under sanctions. Mm-hmm. At least he yeah. didn't bring Rogozin. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. All right, well, that's a, this is a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and move beyond the moment and look at what the summit may mean or not mean going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderful capital city of Vilnius is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. And joining us from Miami is another old friend, David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, and Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. I'd also like to remind you that you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So as President Biden said, the truth about these summits are not really seen in the immediate aftermath. They're not seen in the press conferences, the readouts, or even the media leaks. The true effects of these summits are only really evident weeks, months, and sometimes even years down the road. So what I want to do in this segment is just look at some specific issues and just break them down. And we we got into Ukraine in the beginning, and as I mentioned, President Biden did have a phone call with Vladimir Zelensky before the summit, before his foreign trip, and he will have a White House meeting with President Zelensky after. And as I said also, in the press conference, Putin became particularly animated when he was talking about Ukraine. Uh, David, this was part of your portfolio at State. How do you see the Ukraine issue moving forward? And is this summit and the upcoming White House meeting with Zelensky, could it be any way seen as a watershed? I, I didn't hear anything yesterday that would suggest that there is going to be a breakthrough coming in Russia's position. Putin basically pinned all the responsibility for fixing this on Ukraine. Of course, he denies that Russia is, yeah. is, a, is a player in this, actively involved. He tries to portray Moscow as a mediator. Yeah. And of course, this is not a civil war, despite Putin's efforts to portray it as such. Putin also, before the summit, issued warnings about Ukraine's pursuit of membership in NATO and has made comments about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that it's possible that depending on Ukrainian behavior, they could end the uh, current agreement that runs through 2024 for gas flows earlier than that. So I actually think there's an important meeting that I think, if I remember the schedule right, that will happen before Zelensky uh, visits the White House, and that's Chancellor Merkel's visit to mm. Washington, where she will meet with President Biden. And there, I hope, if if the administration continues with its approach, treating Nord Stream 2 as a fait accompli, that they really press her on the need for Germany to provide significant assistance to Ukraine to try to at least offset the financial mm. impact of Nord Stream 2. It doesn't help them on the political effects of completion of Nord Stream 2. But uh, I, I didn't hear much of anything that uh, would suggest to me there's going to be any major change yes, uh, in, in the Wednesday summit. Do you see any evidence that the American commitment to Ukraine and or the and the European commitment to Ukraine could be bolstered in the aftermath of Zelensky's White House meeting? I hope so. But again, because I, I was a little concerned. Again, the, the Ukrainians didn't necessarily play this all that well because they were pressing so hard for something more than a reaffirmation of 2008. Right. And I have, have told Ukrainians before be careful what you ask for, because if you press for an answer now, the answer is going to be no. There is not consensus within the alliance. I say this as somebody who supports uh, Ukraine's membership in NATO, but you don't want to prematurely pursue it and get the Mm. wrong answer, because that would be the worst of all possibilities. So in some respects, I think the Zelensky administration put the Biden administration in a bit of a tough spot. 
and uh, President Biden's comments about the need to deal with corruption first. True, but we're and the national signal. security concern, and the it, corruption it, itself is a national security concern. Absolutely, but it, it was a signal to Zelensky, you know, cool it and and get your own house in order. The whole Naftagas issue has complicated things, and that's even gotten more complicated in the past 24, 48 hours. So uh, I, I do worry that while the administration is committed to Ukraine, Secretary Blinken's visit there was very important. The invitation to Zelensky for next month's visit is very important. Um, the Ukrainians also have to be careful in how they, they pursue this. Costa, your thoughts on this? May I ask a question, actually, because sure. there's something that definitely of interest and whoever you or, or, or David, if, if you comment on that, I'd love to hear it. And maybe it's a question that would be of interest to, to the audience of the podcast too. To what extent do you think this kind of a lot of rhetoric, but let's say not a lot of re-election with regard to Ukraine, to what extent it may be connected to Biden not wanting to kind of reignite the whole controversy about, uh, about Hunter and about uh, his dealings in Ukraine. And so basically to invite the criticism of his attitudes back into the public arena. Oh, I'm wrong, or I'm conspiracy theorizing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, David. Let's hear you. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think the president has compartmentalized that out, and I don't think that's that's impacting it. He's he's, he's a pro. Uh, I mean, he's right. things he knows how to compartmentalize them. But David, I don't know if David would agree and with if that. Oh, I agree. If it's not the case, then I do think that. As David, by the way, said at the beginning of the podcast, it's been 13 years since 2008. And frankly speaking, both countries that were promised NATO membership in 2008 were victims of uh, the Kremlin's aggression yes. and lost parts of their territory. So basically, the issue to a large extent still stands. It is a credibility of NATO and NATO's words and promises. And the fact that Ukraine and I counted it was mentioned 25 times in last summits, NATO summits, final communique, does not substitute for action. What I would have done, and I've been watching very closely the steadfast defender exercises in Romania a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And uh, because of NATO's interest, let's put it like that, focus on it on the Black Sea region since 2014. I think what the Ukrainians, and I've spoken to a few of them, would expect is, A, maybe this very official reaffirmation of Ukraine as a partner along the lines of South Korea, Australia, Jordan, whatever. Major non-Indo yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And secondly, I would say, I don't know whether it can be played out, but at least a token technical presence of, say, one U.S. unit on Ukrainian soil, repairs unit or whatever, but something that's not trainers, mm. something that indicates real kind of hookup, security hookup right. between the two captains. That would have been a signal that wouldn't have substituted for MAP, membership action plan, but definitely would have, uh, would have created this impetus, which also, by the way, would have been read in Moscow as, well, look, guys, we're serious. We know what the Germans think about it. We know what, the, what people in Paris think about it. We know that Portuguese don't even know where Ukraine is. But uh, basically, we, the, the main ally, we are moving along. Also, I think what would be really good in these circumstances is to have, let's say, major allies like the UK show more interest in helping militarily and security-wise. I'm pretty sure that Boris Johnson will be pretty happy to provide that especially bear in mind the fact that he's not tackling the oligarchical presence in London the way he should. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe on this front, he could have compensated. Yeah, no, I, I've long advocated for giving Ukraine major non-NATO allies status. David, I know you, you have as well. And that's something I'm hoping to see some movement toward that in, in Zelensky's White House meeting. Maybe I'm overly optimistic on that. Um, I, I think that may be a deliverable yeah. for, for that, that meeting, Brian. I think that's a possibility. Can I just very quickly, I yeah. know you want to move on to some other issues, but Kostya, I rightly mentioned another country, uh, Georgia. And mm -hmm. I spoke to some, some friends in Georgia today and did an interview with an outlet there this morning. 
they are very disappointed that there was no mention yesterday in the press conference. Biden ran through the list, Belarus, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iran, no mention of Georgia anywhere. And uh, while, it, yes, it is in the communique again, there is concern that the U.S. administration is not paying attention to what's happening in the South Caucasus, whereas the Russian administration is paying lots of attention. A lot of there. attention. And then we have some- And China. And China. And China, absolutely. And Turkey. And Turkey, yes. Turkey, no, and as too. we know, there's been backsliding in Georgia, and that's causing concern yep. on, on both sides of the Atlantic. One thing I was surprised didn't get much prominence was Belarus, as much as I would have thought it would have gotten. And I want to—I I wrote a piece for the Atlantic Council this week that kind of went out on a limb a bit. I picked up on a, an interview I read by a, a well-connected Belarusian think tanker, Arsene Savitsky, who was writing that he's picking up signals that Moscow wants to float a deal on Belarus, similar to the one the West and Russia appeared to reach, although none was ever announced on Moldova back in 2019. And that was to remove the oligarch Vladimir Plahotniuk from the scene in Moldova, right? Plahotniuk was kind of the gray cardinal of Moldovan politics. He professed to be pro-Western, although did not behave as pro-Western. I always suspected he was a not so stealthy Kremlin agent. But at some point he became toxic to everybody. And the Russians, Americans, and Europeans remarkably appeared because no agreement was ever announced, but it looked obvious from looking at the result that they appeared to basically agree, like, let's get rid of this guy and, and, and live to fight another day. And I was wondering where that was going to go. Now, I couldn't be more happy with how things have turned out so far in Moldova. I mean, Maya Sandu won the presidency with you know 57% of the vote, if, if my memory serves me correct. If my reading of the current public opinion polls is correct, she seems poised to potentially be winning a majority in the Moldovan parliament in the next elections. So that one worked out pretty well for us. And I was wondering and watching for signs if there was like some agreement of, okay, let's get rid of Lukashenko and live to fight another day. I mean, I know Putin is preparing for a post-Lukashenko future. He's putting the assets in place in Belarus. Kosti is shaking his head no, so this is going to be a fun segment. Kosti, you say no. Why not? Because Blachetniuk, in the end, is not equivalent to Lukashenko. Of course he's, not. Of course he's not head of state. He's not Russia's ally. He's just Blachetniuk. One Blachetniuk more, one Blachetniuk less, doesn't matter in the end. Lukashenko is important. Lukashenko has become a symbol. He's Putin's chief ally. So the only way to remove him is actually probably what, to convince him to go. But what will convince him to go? I think that Putin can't really... Uh, apply economic pressure or any other pressure for that matter that will be visible, because then he will undermine his own policy of standing by his polls no matter what, mm -hmm. which he demonstrated through thick and thin, through whatever, since 2000, David Deffen. And with Assad, with Lukashenko, well, not with Gaddafi, because it was Medvedev who was kind of uh, playing this card at the time. But I think that for him, Lukashenko is very important. Once Lukashenko is removed, we are in the a completely sort of uncharted territory. What the next person will do, no one knows. Because the next person won't, won't be controlling Belarus the way Lukashenko controls it. Let's remember, there's only one oligarch in Belarus. Right. And his name is Alexander Rigorevich Lukashenko. Once you remove him, once you remove the system that functions under Lukashenko, who knows? The next person may well say, well, by the way, probably I don't want to be poisoned by Novichok if I displease Putin. And I would rather be on the side of, of light with the West. And moreover, let's remember, Lukashenko prepared, Luk Lukashenko always had, at least in the last uh, 10, 15 years, he always had two narratives in Belarus. One is this kind of Slavic brotherhood, great patriotic war, uh, dances with Russia and so on and so forth. But then there was always this narrative, which I saw many times in Act Two, and that is, we are the, the real Grand Duchy of Lithuania. We are the intersection of East and uh -huh. West. We are the intersection of Catholicism and, and Orthodoxy. We can go West anytime. I know it was used always for games with the European Union, uh -huh. first and foremost, to squeeze money out of the EU and squeeze some dreams, to give them some dreams of kind of Lukashenko moving away from Putin. But it may become serious because 
lots of people who don't like Lukashenko actually accept this idea that Belarus is this kind of third piece of the puzzle together with Lithuania and Poland. And I suppose that Putin wouldn't want to risk it. Also, any removal of Lukashenko, to put it very simply, in my personal view, will do damage to Putin. Moreover, Lukashenko won't be, for one second, he won't be calm. He won't be, he won't feel secure once he's out of the, whatever it's called, Republican Palace, Presidential Palace in Minsk. Because he will always know there is a dose of Novichok for him, just for him not to talk too much. Now, Kostya, I agree with you with one caveat, that, and I've been watching Belarus really closely lately, and Russia is putting the pieces of the puzzle together in place to prepare for a post-Lukashenko future. Putin is long, Putin, yeah, they make a great show of being best friends, they're known to hate each other's guts. And Putin is pushing Lukashenko to do this so-called constitutional reform that would create a so-called parliamentary republic and is putting the pro-Kremlin parties and media in place to assure that Russia kind of controls that future, right? They, they are doing this. This is happening in real time. Now, whether this is play acting or not, I don't know. But it, the thought has crossed my mind, hmm, let's, let's call their bluff here because that's a field we can play on too, Right. And that the pro-Western elements of Belarusian society could play on, too. I found it significant that the day before the summit, Tikhanovskaya was removed from Russia's most wanted list. I thought that was an interesting data point. Um, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But I'm wondering if there isn't, there, there might not be some movement here. Uh, David, what do you think? You've been quiet in this, this little section. Well, I, I hate to disappoint you, Brian, but I'm more where Kostya is. Okay. Um, and the reason I am is based on their last meeting in Sochi. That came, as we all know, on, on the heels of the air piracy with the Ryanair flight. And that could have been an opportunity for Putin to have decided Lukashenko went too far. Instead, he embraced him more than I think we have seen almost any time mm. uh, before that. Uh, it, it was a pretty chummy visit. I agree with you. I don't think they like each other. I think Putin, in fact, thinks he, uh, Lukashenko is an idiot. But he pretty warmly embraced Lukashenko mm. at that meeting. And I, I think that was a sign that uh, he, he's going to keep him there, mm. at least for the time being. It, it's it's the same problem, you know, that we saw with Yanukovych and others. Putin hates to see leaders driven out by mm. popular protests. Yeah. And as long as that's the case, I think he's going to stick with them for a while. Uh, I, I would like to add here, I think I discern even an element of admiration in Putin towards Lukashenko. <laughs> he held out for one year. He managed to shrug off all Western concerns. I'm sure that Putin is studying yeah. the experience that he's probably initiated a very vast Opotam experience mm. of exchanges between the respective police forces. I'm sure also that this Ryanair thing is significant, right? I mean, that was a moment to jump off this carousel. Well, he except and I view the Ryanair thing as a, as a reflexive control operation. I think the Russians gave the Belarusians the intelligence, hoping they were going to do exactly what they did, which would make Lukashenko toxic, which would allow Putin to then kind of make this quote unquote concession to the West, okay, I'll help you get rid of Lukashenko. Uh, maybe I've been reading too much Russian media and getting too conspiratorial. The way he speaks about it publicly, including the embassy interview and including the press conference in Geneva, is basically a very, very, well, I mean, he plays this kind of, I don't know what really happened, but mm. I believe what Lukashenko tell, told me. So I do think that he's not kind of, uh, he, he's not, mm. Uh, getting off his horse. Right. And, and I think that, well, he's not going to go to war for Belarus, but I think that for him, and, and this is very, very, it's in fact, if you look at it, very logical. The same goes for Assad now. Who is dependent on whom? Actually, mm. Putin is dependent on Assad to some extent, well, no less, or only slightly less, that Assad depends on Putin. And because the supporting such regimes becomes part of your political identity, not of your even political creed, of your political, of your prestige. And because Putin is so concerned about his prestige, because mm -hmm. he's so concerned to be considered, considered, still considered, world champion on countering regime change, 
he can't forsake Lukashenko mm. because everyone will say he basically sold Lukashenko down the road and then everyone, whatever allies remain, will be, hmm, yeah. Maybe it's mm. he's not congressional. No, I'm not. I'm not theological about this. I don't. I, I'm perfectly willing to be wrong about this. I wanted to throw it out there because I just thought I just was watching a bunch of data points that looked interesting to me. Go ahead. Let, let me let me just add one more though, Brian. And, and it was by no means a carbon copy of what happened with the Ryanair flight. But after that incident, remember what happened to Andrei Pivovarov. The Russians yeah. stopped a lot airline in St. Petersburg on the mm. runway and arrested him. Mm. And again, it's not. It wasn't exactly. Exactly the same as what happened with uh, Roman Protasevich. But these leaders, and by that I mean authoritarian leaders, are watching each other, watching what they can get away with. And it almost struck me as the Russians said, hey, that was a pretty neat trick Lukashenko pulled off. Uh, let's see if we could do something similar. And, and including, unfortunately, including, pay us including arresting price. Russian citizens. By the way, that would have been another, yeah. another yes. uh, yeah. uh, great uh, peg. Uh, as they say in journalists, for Putin to say, by the way, why is the Russian citizen in jail? Sofia Sapieha. Right. But there is nothing. Oh, consular assistance has been rendered. Okay, you have some kind of non-entity from the non-existent Russian embassy there came and said, well, by the way, do you need water? Or something like that. Right. Uh, I think that what we see now is that definitely with regard to Ryanair incident, Putin will stand with Lukashenko. What actually... What really caught my imagination to some extent is the way European leaders reacted to that. And I think that it's very interesting that airliners have become, air travel has become this sort of uh, very symbolic thing, much more than when uh, whatever uh, Leila Khalid uh, captured, you know, planes in Jordan for the Palestinians in the early 70s. Because just as with the the tragic flight MH17 shot down over Ukraine in July 2014, uh, this is something that is understandable to your average tabloid reader in the UK, or to your average mm-hmm. Monsieur Dupont uh, living near Montpellier in France, because Ryanair, everyone in Europe knows Ryanair. I know Ryanair. I fly, well, not frequently, thank God. I fly this <laughs> This is I like, prefer it's like an air taxi. So uh, everyone recognizes it. And when people hear Ryanair, that rings a bell much more than Crimea, Tsar mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas I, right. Uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, um, you know, Pilsudski, you name it. People don't know what, what that, that alphabet soup is. But that Ryanair, they know, yeah. Kuala Lumpur, where, well, richer people in Europe will go on holiday in a 777, they know what it is. So because of that, uh, these acts are very important because these acts uh, are such that even the European surrender monkeys, as uh, your former president, um, uh, David, would have said, uh, can't help but act on that. And I suppose that one thing that we should always remember with regard to Ukraine, with regard to Putin, is that MH17 trial in The Hague is moving a bit much faster now. And this is another huge concern for Putin. Mm. This is somehow overlooked completely. This is a huge concern because this, I'm not going to prejudge, but this expression, uh, war crimes, is probably very much going to be used by the court in the very end, maybe in the sentence uh, concerning these four people, but also in this kind of general deliberation, mm. how, how this whole thing could have happened. And I think that Putin is very much concerned about it. And by the way, coming back to the Biden schedule, we don't know, but I think that Putin will react to the sentence and what mm. his reaction will be. I'm really, really afraid even to try and predict. Mm. Well, gentlemen, I could continue this for hours and hours and hours and end, but my awesome production team would probably uh, put a contract out on me, so I'm going to have to wrap it up. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the 
MTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, which I miss dearly, has been my old friend Konstantin Egger, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. And joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, is another old friend, David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush, also serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. Thank you both for a lively and enlightening discussion. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Kosti. We'll have to do it again okay. soon. I'd, I'd also like thank to thank our very awesome and very patient production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad, who handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.